I get that more people listen to your podcast than most others, but it's because A, you're usually right, not always, quite frankly. You know, like he's 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 right less often than most podcasts, but he's entertaining and his pace and his cadence of speaking for a solo pinball podcast is incredible. And I'll keep listening if he puts out more episodes, but I listen with a grain of salt. Like when I stepped in front of an Oktoberfest, do I think that's the ugliest machine ever made? Hell no. It's actually not a bad looking game. <laughs> you know, he's listed on This Week in Pinball as being a pinball promoter. But if you think about it, is he really? I would say most episodes he's 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 making pinball sound bad and catty. He's bringing up the negative parts of pinball. It's like, you know what? If Kaneda comes back, like I said to you guys before we start recording, he is the Darth Vader of pinball podcasting and pinball media. I, you don't even own a pinball machine. I'm not sure if you're as passionate about pinball as me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 484 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. I am your father of the pinball podcast. I love it. I love it. You go away for a few weeks, everyone's got to start talking smack about the world's number one pinball podcast, but that's what happens. That's what happens. So everyone, we have some news in the pinball world, so let's do a little episode of Canada's Pinball Podcast, and we'll prove to the world that you don't need over an hour lately. Have you noticed this new trend in the pinball podcasting world is everyone has to talk for over an hour and there's no news? It's unbelievable. And they say that I'm the one who likes to hear myself talk. So what are we going to talk about on this episode of Canada's Pinball Podcast? There's a new hire over at Stern Pinball. They put out a press release. We're going to talk about that. Stern Pinball has turned the factory back on. We're going to talk about that. There's one factory that should be turning on right now, and I'm not hearing anything, and we're going to talk about that. And then there's also a little bit of a mistake that happened over at Jersey Jack Pinball, which is really, really funny. We're going to talk about a Wizard of Oz limited edition mistake that has some people debating whether or not Jersey Jack has pulled a fast one in the world of limited edition games. So how's that sound for a little episode of Canada's Pinball Podcast, the return of the evil pinball podcaster? So Stern put out a press release dated yesterday, May 18th, that Stern Pinball, a global lifestyle brand based on the iconic and outrageously fun modern American game of pinball, announced today the appointment of Raymond Davidson as game development software engineer. And then they go on to talk about how Raymond most recently worked at Amazon, Ripple, and Smilebox. And in addition to his professional engineering accomplishments, Raymond is passionately a pinball enthusiast and a world-class player. He is currently ranked number one uh, in the competitive pinball player space. And George Gomez had this to say, Raymond's pinball IQ is off the charts which is clearly why he's currently ranked number one in the world. We are very excited to add his talents to our studio as we continue to grow our unique lifestyle entertainment brand and produce the most fun pinball machines on the planet, said Gomez. So here's the thing. I love that Stern is now embracing the joke. They know what they're doing when they call it a lifestyle brand in these press releases. They know that the only people who read a pinball press release, think about it, a press release is meant to go out to media. 
there really is no pinball media other than us, the podcast and the websites. Who's covering this stuff? Nobody's covering this stuff. Do you think IGN's writing about Raymond joining Stern Pinball? Nobody cares. And that is why they're using this inflated language of outrageously fun and iconic machine. They know that they're just taking the piss out of us. And I find it funny. And I think those of you out there are missing some of the sarcasm right now. They're in on the joke. Okay, so what do we think about Raymond joining Stern Pinball as a coder and being the world's number one ranked player? What does that mean? To have coding skills and to be a great pinball player is a great combination. And it, it, just on a surface level, I, I think you look at this hire as a good thing happening over at Stern Pinball. But I think there's one major caveat when it comes to coding. And I think it's something that means the most. And I, and I want to explain what I mean right now. It doesn't matter how good at pinball you are. It doesn't matter if you're the number one ranked player. It doesn't matter how good at coding you are either. Because what matters in pinball coding, for pinball coding to be magical, to be meaningful, to be impactful, you have to code in moments in the pinball experience that are fun, that are memorable, that are long lasting with the player. And I'm here to tell you right now that you can't teach that skill set. You either have it or you don't. And some coders just have it. Like Lyman Sheets is a great example of a man who's a competitive pinball player, but he also understands what makes code so rewarding for the player. And that is why Lyman Sheets games are so coveted and so highly praised by the community. It's not that he has so many hours on a machine. It's not that he understands coding. It's that he understands how to make a game rewarding. And you can't teach that. You can't teach that. Another person who has that special skill set is Keith Elwin. He's a great player competitively, but he also knows the rule set and how he wants the player to journey through a game. And I think when people play Keith Elwin games, they, it's like when coding is done right, you're just enjoying the game. And I think the best way to describe it is you kind of just get lost in the game. You're lost in the experience. It's like being in a movie theater and it's that moment in which you forget that you're actually in a movie theater. You're just enjoying the journey. And I think that's what the best pinball coders do. But I just don't think one plus one always equals two in the world of coding. It's like when I heard that Steve Bowden was joining Deep Root Pinball to code Raza and everyone was like, this is amazing, this is incredible news. And, and I was like, yeah, like it's Steve's a great player, but what experience does Steve have coding a game? And has Steve ever coded a game that's made people say, wow, right? It's his first game. So we don't know. I mean, we're going to find out if Steve Bowden has that magical quality to code a game that's memorable, that makes people feel something. And, and that, again, that's just something that you can't teach. You know, Bo and Karen's over at Spooky Pinball. It's like great having these tournament guys on the rule set, but I'm here to tell you this. I'm here to tell you this. The best tournament players in the world they don't care about how fun a game is. They don't care about the magical moments in pinball. To, to them, that doesn't mean anything. A tournament player's objective is to find a pathway to points. Like scoring is everything to them. They're not about the moments. They're not about the light shows. They're not about all that stuff that makes the, the rest of us all giddy and excited 
to get to a mode. So, for example, if you take a mode like there and back again in Lord of the Rings, a mode in which players love, but imagine if that mode doesn't have the best scoring elements, then a tournament player is not trying to get to that mode. Now, I think the best pinball coders in the world, they do two things. They understand how to marry getting to those iconic moments in the game with getting high points. To me, that should always be how pinball coding is approached. That the the stuff that's the most rewarding to see is also rewarding you with the most points, right? Doesn't that only make natural sense? That the moment in which you destroy the ring in Lord of the Rings should be big point moment in the game versus some of these newer approaches where there's all these multipliers, kind of like the way Dwight did Star Wars. It's like you, you chase after the multipliers versus trying to blow up the Death Star. Like, shouldn't blowing up the Death Star be worth a billion points or, 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 or like 10 billion points? And I don't care how hard you make that goal, right? I'd rather watch people struggle to blow up the Death Star and get 10 billion points versus always trying to go to the multiplier route to get those points. So we'll see how Raymond does at Stern Pinball. Not sure what game he's working on. And the fact that he's joining Stern today or yesterday we probably won't see his efforts on a game until 2021. But I will say it's a great hire. I always like to see Stern staff up with more people in the coding department because they could use a little bit more coding prowess if you ask me. All right. What else is going on? So Stern Pinball is back in the office to a limited capacity. So I heard yesterday from someone who works there that there are people back in the office. Now it's going to be limited, and I'm not sure if that means the production has turned back on, but it looks like it has. And that means that we will most likely, I think, see a Stern game sometime in June. I'm not sure when, but sometime in June. And it probably will be the same order of games, which is Heavy Metal, and then we will see Ninja Turtles. Now, Heavy Metal was ready to go. They even had the launch date back in March, but they moved it. And Ninja Turtles was also ready for early April. So I fully expect to see both of these games in a short window of each other. Now, Ninja Turtles, here's what we know so far. It's Dwight on code, Zombietti on artwork, and John Borg on design. Okay, those are the th that's like the, the, the trifecta team they've put together for Ninja Turtles. The debate still rages on on whether or not Ninja Turtles is a title that adults are excited to play and get and put in their game room. And I've heard from many people that they're like, you know what, it's just too juvenile for me. I've heard from other people that say they're just too old and they missed when Ninja Turtles was popular. And I do understand that. I mean, I feel like Ninja Turtles... The sweet spot for that franchise was like mid 80s to maybe early 90s. That that is like that the window in which you had the movies, you had the cartoon series, you have the iconic four player uh, video game or arcade game in arcades. That that arcade took up probably hundreds of dollars in quarters for me and my brother over the years, just playing it over and over again. I haven't really thought about Ninja Turtles very much since then. And I don't think a lot of grown men are clamoring to get a Ninja Turtles game. Now, that being said, do I think it's a, a fun theme for pinball? Absolutely. But I can't escape the fact that one cartoon just came out that has R-rated cursing and swearing and is adult-oriented, like Rick and Morty, and then Ninja Turtles, which is 
kind of juvenile, cowabunga, dude. It's going to be very much a PG journey through the Ninja Turtles world, which is fine. But I just think the pinball buying demographic is more in tune with Rick and Morty just because of the adult nature of it than they are with Ninja Turtles. Now, that being said, I've heard that that there are ramps and rails going up and down and below the play field and Zombietti's art package is out of this world and that Dwight on code, we're all praying, we're praying to the pinball gods that Dwight just finally figures out what people want in these games and doesn't do like some pinball math or make it too basic. Dwight, please, just every time you think of doing something in this game, Dwight, just just knock on Lyman's door and say, hey, Lyman, what would you do here? Lyman, how would you code this? Lyman, how would you? Please just ask the other people there, Dwight, for some help on this game and don't mess it up. Please, please, please. But there's one major thing, and there's one major thing that would keep me from buying Ninja Turtles, and there's one major thing that I think Stern Pinball needs to figure out right now, and to me, it's the most important thing they need to figure out. You know what? Let me play a clip, because I think this explains the number one issue that would keep me from buying a Stern Pinball machine new in box in 2020. And let's hear it from them first, what their take is on this. It's, it's something that drives me crazy. All of us here at CERN, all of us have known pinball for years, okay? For 50, 60 years, okay? Here it is, ready? The subject of dimpling is ridiculous, okay? Dimpling happens on every single pinball machine ever made, whether it be made by Williams, uh, Gottlieb, Stern, Bally, everybody that's ever made pinballs and used a wood play field, okay, will experience dimpling because the ball is harder than the wood. What people don't seem to understand is, oh, my game, you know, it's all it's all marked up. I can't stand it. Okay, if you want a game that isn't marked up, never play it. Just clean it, turn on the lights, you know, admire it, show it to your friends. Can we play it? No. That's actually not true, Mr. Steve Ritchie, because I'll tell you a game that has no dimples on it after hundreds of plays and that's Spooky Pinball's Rick and Morty. So you answer me this one question, pinball people out there. How come Spooky Pinball is able to give you a machine with no dimples, a machine that looks like glass after a thousand plays with Rick and Morty, and yet Stern Pinball, their recent releases have looked horrible, have looked horrendous lately. Stranger Things is one of the most embarrassingly defective playfield clear coats I've ever seen in pinball. And in this time off, in this time that Stern has had to listen to the feedback, to hear from people, how can anyone out there actually open up their wallet and rush to buy a game unless they know that Stern has fixed this dimpling issue? And, and, I'm, and I'm so tired of the apologists, and I hear them being like, it's not a big issue. Stranger Things looks horrible. Jurassic Park dimples really bad. Batman looks horrendous. When I sold my Batman 66 Super LE, the buyer said the only reason I'm buying your game, Chris, is because it has a playfield protector. So I'm not here to question whether or not dimpling happens on every game because I know that Steve Ritchie, when he says that, he's kind of lying. He's making up this notion that dimpling happens on every game. Now, I will give him this. I will give him this. A few dimples forming on a game that's played a lot, is that normal? I would agree that he is right there. We are not talking about a few dimples here and there in a game. We are talking about Stern Pinball's games of recent 
they look like the cratered surface of a moon. It's not just one or two in an area where the ball is landing, maybe because it bounces off of something or drops from a, a ramp or a wire form. We are talking about the entire play field gets cratered all over the place. It's cheap. It's not holding up. It looks like garbage over time. And so for $9,000, why is it that Stern Pinball with their LEs doesn't have a better system? I mean, people bought a $15,000 Elvira edition game that dimples like crazy. You'd think for $15,000, Stern would have sent those 50 playfields to Cruzman and had him do his magic with the playfield and make sure that they're bulletproof. So that's my main thing with these Stern games is they've almost checked every single box to where you can buy with confidence. Now, why can't they figure this out? And should I stop talking about it? Should Is Dimplegate something of the past? I don't think so. I just would not want to buy a modern day Stern machine, open it up, play it for like a weekend, look down on it, and it looks like garbage. And yet Spooky Pinball's Rick and Morty looks incredibly perfect after months of play. And I saw it at Jack Bar, and it's like glass. The mach- and there, was, there wasn't any dimples on the game. Not one. And we were next to a Stranger Things that had less plays, and it looked disastrously bad. So as a consumer, how do you deal with this? Do you not care? Now, you could. Like, you could absolutely not care and just think this is an OCD, anal retentive way to look at the games. Or you could be like me and say, look, I want to buy your product but I want you to have the best possible quality when I'm going to spend this kind of money on a game. And they just don't. They just don't. I'm telling you right now, Spooky Pinball's clear coat mixture is better than everyone else's. And, and, and I hear people already are saying like, well, my TNA was this or my Rob Zombie was this. I'm here to tell you right now that TNA had issues. Rob Zombie had issues. And what did Charlie do? He went and he fixed the clear coat issue and they found a new solve so that Rick and Morty has their current solve for clear coats on pinball playfields. And let me tell you, it's as close to perfect as I've ever seen a pinball clear coat as of the last five years. And so why is Stern Pinball still confused about how to get these games to that level of quality? They are the biggest company in the world. They have the most engineers in the world. They have the brightest minds in pinball, without a doubt. So how is a tiny company in Benton, Wisconsin, schooling Stern Pinball on playfield quality? And I'm sorry, this is to me, this is like one of the most important things because you just don't want to spend these prices and see your game look like crap so soon after unboxing it. And, and that's just something like, as a buyer... That is one of the most important things I'm thinking about as I think about Ninja Turtles. Now, here's my thing. Stranger Things was horrible. The quality of those playfields was so piss poor. What makes us believe that Stern took this extra time to get the playfields for Turtles better? And it's such a shame. They're going to have this beautiful Zombie Eddie artwork. And are you just going to watch the playfield crater immediately? And I just think they are. And here's the thing about Stern. They'll never admit that they cut corners with playfield production. They'll never admit any of this. And that's fine. I get it. It's a business. But I would like to hear Stern Pinball sometime in the near future say that they've improved their clear coat and play field process. That they've made it so dimples and not even dimples. Just say this this incessant cratering 
is a thing of the past. And that's just me. I just wouldn't want to buy these games that look like crap right away. And you make up your mind on it. But man, I love what Spooky's doing to the point where, to the point where, and I'm just going to say this, if Spooky Pinball has this proprietary system in which they can make playfields this good, and I'm Stern Pinball, and, I, and I've seen a couple things happen. I've seen Spooky Pinball fix one of our biggest headaches, which is playfield quality. I've also seen Spooky Pinball sell out in four hours of Rick and Morty. Let me ask you a hypothetical question. Why doesn't Stern Pinball look at buying Spooky Pinball? Why don't they look at absorbing this little boutique company that has a big fan base, that has some really talented people, and why don't they combine forces? Now, I know Stern doesn't need them, but maybe Stern needs access to some of that proprietary tech or process that Chuck is doing with the playfields. I mean, that's why big companies buy smaller companies sometimes, just to get access to proprietary or licensed materials or processes. So is it crazy to think that if Spooky Pinball has figured out one of Stern's biggest issues, they would buy them? Now, here's the reason why they won't. Because Stern Pinball won't even feel the impact of this because people will just run and buy these games without even caring. And that's that's your prerogative. I just don't want to own a game that looks like crap after one month of playing it. And I'm sorry, I had a Lord of the Rings in my apartment It was already a few years old when I bought it. I played it for a couple years. It still looked pretty perfect. There was like hardly any, 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 maybe a dimple here or there, but cratered like these new games? Absolutely not. I think Steve Ritchie is sort of misleading us when he said that in 2017, he said that. Three years, that was three years ago that he said that statement. Three years later, look at the quality of a Stranger Things machine and you tell me, that Stern cares about getting these playfields to a higher caliber. They just don't. And it's so unfortunate. All right. All right. Enough about that. Let's talk about Keith Elwin's next game. So I'm hearing pretty good rumors and pretty good reports from my inside sources of what Keith Elwin's next Stern pinball game will be. And I'm also hearing that if this disruption didn't happen, We were possibly going to see this game at the end of 2020, and I'm not sure if that's still the case. So what is Keith Elwins, the superstar designer at Stern Pinball behind Iron Maiden and Game of the Year Jurassic Park? What is his next game? So here is what I'm hearing Keith Elwin is working on over at Stern Pinball next. So you heard it here on Canada's Pinball Podcast. The next game from Keith Elwin will be Godzilla. Now we know Stern has acquired the rights to Godzilla a while ago. They stole it from Spooky Pinball. You didn't, they didn't really steal it. They were just they just got the license. Um, so Keith Elwin going from one big lizard game in Jurassic Park to another big lizard game in Godzilla. So how do we feel about Keith Elwin working on Godzilla? So I don't know. I mean, Godzilla is a theme that's pretty niche. It's it's Godzilla is obviously very well known, but it's it's not got the same kind of mainstream appeal as Jurassic Park. I think it's a little bit of a B-level theme. I really do. I think it's more of a campy, nerdy sort of sci-fi guys theme. I think Godzilla would have been a much better theme over at Spooky Pinball, knowing that Chuck and company love that theme so much. Do I think Keith Elwin loves Godzilla the way Charlie and company do? No, I do not. Um, That being said, who would I rather have design 
a Godzilla pinball machine, Keith Elwin or Charlie Emery, without a doubt. Uh, Keith Elwin is one of the greatest designers, and he keeps showing it, and he keeps getting better with each game. So I think you'd, everyone would always want to have Keith do the actual layout of a game. But I, I do think this is a little bit of a, you know, a middle of the road. I don't think this is a take my money now kind of theme for people. Uh, even though Keith Elwin is a take my money kind of now designer. Now, and that's my point is I just really wish Stern Pinball would align the stars. Why can't they give us the, an all-star theme with an all-star designer, with an all-star coder, with an all-star artist all at once? So a dream for me would be the Matrix Pinball with Keith Elwin on design, Lyman Sheets on the code, and Zombie Yeti on artwork. To me, like, can't we just get a game in which we get those four gentlemen together to make an all-star game that's just like the last game you ever need to own? It's almost like Stern on purpose does this. They always shuffle the deck. So there's always something just quite not, you know, that's that will satisfy you forever. It's an interesting thought when you think about it. Does a pinball company actually want to make a game that doesn't make you want to buy more games? Think about that for a minute. If they were to give you your dream theme, that it was a grail pin that was super deep, super beautiful, super amazing, super magical, that just satisfied your pinball itch forever. Does that even exist? Can that exist? I would argue that everything gets boring and that you would want new games. But just, I, I don't know, maybe that's part of the strategy is to always leave you somewhat unsatisfied so you buy the next game immediately to see if it actually fulfills you a little bit more. So you can just you can just uh, trademark that Canada Pinball Podcast is telling everyone that Keith Elwin is working on Godzilla and it's pronounced Canada. Uh, it's still a rumor at this point, but look, this is now this is pinball content for all the other pinball shows out there, and they can they can say my name, Canada, and they can credit me or they cannot. Okay, so that's happening there. Um, what else is going on? All right, so th- this we're going to close this show with the wild and weird story over at Jersey Jack Pinball that actually saw the first moment in which Ken Cromwell, communication specialist for Jersey Jack Pinball, sort of came in front of the community. And, and set the record straight on something. So if you haven't seen this story, the thread is actually closed down. Uh, but someone noticed that they had a Wizard of Oz Ruby Red Edition, and they had a special uh, number of their Ruby Red Edition, and the number they had was 1939. Now, that is the year that Wizard of Oz movie came out. Now, it turns out that another gentleman was selling their Ruby Red Edition Wizard of Oz, and they also had game number 1939. So the person was pissed off that Jersey Jack had given someone else a serial number, limited edition number game that was supposed to be exclusively theirs. Now, is it worth more money that you have Wizard of Oz, Ruby Red, LE number 1939? Absolutely not. It's, it, it doesn't make the game worth one more penny at all. And a few reasons for that. One, Jersey Jack has made so many limited edition Wizard of Oz games that no one considers any of them really at any number to be of any extra value. There's just too many of them. If he had only made 250 LEs of Wizard of Oz, sure, you could argue that you have something more valuable than the other ones, but that hasn't been the case. The other reason why is just people don't care. 
like on the collectible side of this hobby, this isn't like you have a numbers matching Shelby Cobra car or you have like a Paul Newman era Daytona watch. There's just, for something to have value, someone has to recognize that value and the buyers just don't care. They just don't. They will never care that you have that. Okay, so it turns out Ken chimed in and said this happened by mistake. That unfortunately, Jersey Jack Pinball, when they went to send someone else a, a sticker that had the number of their game, they reprinted the 1939 sticker that they gave to somebody else. Now, here's why this whole thing could have easily have been avoided from the very beginning. And again, I just think it goes to show that Jersey Jack Pinball needs to figure out their limited edition process and make it better than it currently is. Because if you ask yourself, how is it even possible in a game in which Jack announced we're only making 1,500 Ruby Red editions, right? One comma five zero zero. 1,500 games that should be ordered numerically. How is it possible that a game can be made that's 1,939, which exceeds one through 1,500? So, and according to Jack's process, apparently you can order... You can order your game to be serial number any four digits you want. It doesn't have to be between 1 and 1,500. Now, that is moronic for obvious reasons. Because if you want to know you have a game that falls within the 1,500 made, how can you possibly, how can you possibly begin to organize where your game falls if you can let someone be number 8,769 and my game is number 6,543. It's so stupid that Jack lets people do that. Like personalized numbers that go outside? No, if you're making 1,500 of something, sure, let people request number one or 23 or 27 or 1909, not even, you can't be 1909, but you can't let someone request a number that exceeds 1,500. Doesn't that just seem like common sense? So it was nice to see Ken chime in. What I'm actually happy to see is Ken's going to be part of the pin side conversation around Jersey Jack Pinball. I think it's great. And I think one of the things too, people, if you have an issue with a manufacturer and there's something that you want clarity on, it's probably best to go to the manufacturer first. In fact, I recommend that. Just go to them first and ask them what happened before you start a pin side thread claiming that Jersey Jack is a liar and a fraud and, and try to burn the company's image down simply because of a mistake. And this clearly was a mistake. And what happened was, you know, someone requested it and got it. And then someone else was asked for a plaque and got sent the wrong thing. Okay, so that's the mistake. Whether you believe it or not, so be it. But all of this just could have been avoided if Jack just stops this stupid process of making it so ambiguous and impossible to understand how his Ellie model works. I mean, have we forgotten the joke that is the Yellow Brick Road limited edition game? I mean, think about that for a minute. Jersey Jack Pinball, this is why people don't trust Jack. And there, there is validity to those who say Jack is just a sleazy salesman with some sleazy sales tactics because think about how moronic this is. We are making a limited number of Yellow Brick Road edition WAS machines, okay? Limited number. All right, what's the next question you would ask? 
Well, how many are you making? You know what the answer is? Well, we don't know. And when you order a Yellow Brick Road Edition, you know what's on your game? It tells you what your game number is. So you have game number 75. Okay, cool. 75 out of how many? Nobody knows. It's anyone's guess. That's a problem. This company needs to wake up when it comes to limited edition games, okay? And it's 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 always plagued them. And I do see people on Pinside being like, the whole limited edition collector's thing is stupid and we should get rid of it. No, those people are stupid. It's a great way to give collectors and people who do value these things to give them something that means something to them. I the Stern's three three-tiered model is perfect. And you know, where it starts to fall apart is when you get loosey-goosey with it. Like, just make as many as you say you're going to make and don't make more. That's how you maintain something being special to a collector. If you say, you know, when things fall apart is when you sell 500 Munsters machines, you get 500 orders on day one, and then on day two, you say, well, we're actually going to make 600. That's where it falls apart for me. It falls apart when you announce too many. Then it's not even limited. We're going to make 800 Star Wars limited editions. We're going to make, what did Jack say? He's going to make 5,000 limited edition Willy Wonka games. 5,000. And then 500 collector's editions at 12.5 is also too many. So that's, you know, it's just a ridiculous item. It was nice to see Ken chime in with that. And, you know, that's what's going on in the world of pinball these days. The final piece of news that I, that I don't see anyone really talking about is the fact that the state of Texas is reopened for business. And with Texas reopening as one of the first states to turn everything back on, you know, there's one pinball company in Texas that told us that they were ready to show Raza in mid-March. And here we are in mid-May. Texas is back on. So when is Deep Root Pinball going to show us Retro Atomic Zombie Adventureland? China is shipping parts. Pinball Life out of Chicago is shipping parts. There really is no more excuses as to the delay or the holdup for Retro Atomic Zombie Adventureland. There are no pinball shows that are going to take place anytime soon. There is not going to be a physical moment for Robert to show us this game. But when is he finally going to show us? Here it is. You can place your order now. I'm just wondering. Now, I'm going to speculate. I'm going to speculate and I'm going to say that I just don't see Deep Root getting this game out the door anytime in the summer. And I hope I'm wrong. I want to see this game. But it's just delays, delays, delays. And I just want to believe what they tell us when they come on the show that he had the game ready to go in March and he had games ready to ship out to people by the end of April. So if we believe that stuff, then I have to believe that manufacturing was on board and ready to go. I have to believe that the game was finished. And now that we're heading into June in a couple weeks, are we going to see Deep Root Pinball finally, finally reveal a game, offer a game for sale, and most importantly, manufacture a game and get it to a customer? The jig is up. Like we're, I, I think we're all exhausted on this wait for Raza. Just Just tell us, how many are there going to be? What is the game? What is the platform? What makes it special? He can't keep hiding. Because if Robert delays this too long and he allows Guns N' Roses and Ninja Turtles and all these other games to come out, 
it's just going to be DOA. And I think now is the golden opportunity for them if they're going to make a limited number of Raza games and they can actually get them to customers. I won't even bring up what he said in the past, that whenever you order a game from them, it's going to be at your door in two weeks. I mean, remember he said this stuff. Every order is going to be shipped within two weeks to people. Is that a reality? Or are they going to you know, change the shipment schedule around on us? I don't think people care. I think they just want to see it. I think they just want to see it. As far as the other games, I think we can all agree that ironically, it's going to be really hard for Hot Wheels to catch fire. I don't know how they drum up excitement for this game now after this long pause. And they haven't let anyone stream it. To me, when Hot Wheels finally streams itself to the world, it's going to be a moment in which people either get on board or they immediately write it off. There's going to be no slow burn. It doesn't matter how much Josh Kugler tries to convince us with long-winded pinside posts about how the game is great and why we should love it. We're going to make up our own minds when we see it. I am concerned because the code is all about the TV show that is for six-year-old kids. So you're playing a game that is basically bringing a six-year-old kid's TV show to life. That worries me, but we'll see when we see it streamed. P3 Multimorphic, the heist, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, how many people have platforms that can even absorb it? Are people getting it? It's definitely P3's coolest game to date. But then again, like $10,000 to get a Multimorphic right now seems like a really tall order for people as we go through this new economic reality, right? So I think Stern Pinball is going to be the first, and I think they're going to reap the benefits of being first back on the market. I keep hearing that Jersey Jack's move is a little bit delayed. I don't think we're going to see Guns N' Roses uh, anytime before the fall. I hope I'm wrong. I, I want a Guns N' Roses more than any pin right now. I really do. It's the one pin that has me the most excited because of the theme. But I, I just can't see Jersey Jack getting this game on the line in the next few months. I, I, I think it's going to be a very, very slow release for this game. And Stern Pinball is going to swoop in and have stuff going. When, when this thing turns back on, the companies that can turn on the quickest are going to be the ones that are best suited to survive this. The companies that are still delayed and are going to have issues with supplies and parts and excuses and this and that, they're going to have a tremendously hard time. Because I do think a lot of people have cabin fever. A lot of people have money that they're not using for vacations and for travel and for going out. And they're going to want to get a new pin. Whoever whoever puts up a new pin for sale is going to see, I think, a lot, a lot of demand for it. And if you wait, if I'm Jack and if I'm Chicago Gaming Company and if I'm Deep Root, you got to get your games out. You got to get your games out in June, July if you want to capture some of this new pent-up demand for new games. Now, where there's going to be an evaporation of demand is from operators, so I don't think like pro models are going to be like really sought after as much. I, I think the collector and the home buyer is going to be driving the return to pinball at first until location play returns. Okay. That's just my opinion. Everyone, this has been episode 484 of Canada's Pinball Podcast, the Darth Vader of pinball podcasting. We'll talk to you soon. Later. Later.